Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in CSI in Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Debbie, it's good to see you today. Anna, good to see you too. So I have an interview with a clinical psychologist and meditation teacher that is here in Santa Barbara and also an author of a new book that just came out called Heartwork. And I'm really excited to share it with our listeners because it has some nice practical tools that they'll be able to use at home. And I sent it to you and I'm wondering if you <laughs> cracked it open and, and read a little bit of it. I did. Thank you so much. What a nice gift and a lovely surprise to find um, this book on my front porch. Yeah. So I have, I just got it the other day. So I've just started taking a peek at it. Um, it's about the path toward self-compassion and I'm just in the first few chapters, but it looks really intriguing. Diana, do you practice um, self-compassion with your clients in your practice very much or is this new to you? Uh, this is something that I've been practicing for a while, and I think my my entry point was really more through Tara Brock and some of her practices. But I I have been doing the type of uh, self compassion that uh, Radley Weiniger talks about, which is more of a mantra based uh, mindfulness, where you're saying some uh, meditations to yourself uh, that you uh, repeat over time with your breath when you're in a meditation practice, and it's pretty powerful. Uh, what about you? How do you practice it. You know, I have, um, this, it's newer to me, I would say. Um, I think the, the exercise I've done with clients frequently, though, is where I have them get in contact with someone in their life who's not themselves, who's suffering in some way and, and sort of contact compassion toward that other person. Um, and usually people are able to do that fairly well. And then um, that comes easily for most people. And then I have them contact something that they themselves are, are suffering with and to try to turn that same sense of compassion toward themselves. And what I typically find, and this is true for me too, and I think it's true for most of the clients that I've done th this with, is that it's much harder to be compassionate toward ourselves than it is to be compassionate toward others. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that this book, the work in this book is really going to be a nice next step for people who are, who are having a hard time with that self-compassion. Yes. So yeah. I look forward to seeing if you do some of these practices with your clients and we can check in at another time, see how it works. And there's a real also special treat to today's interview in that Dr. Radelay is going to lead us, lead us through a loving kindness practice at the end of the interview. 
So go ahead and listen to the interview, go for a walk, listen in the car, and then save that little last piece so that you can go home and practice it with your meditation. Or if you don't have a meditation, just try, try it out. It could be a nice um, tool to use. How wonderful. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Dr. Radhale Weininger is a clinical psychologist and teacher of Buddhist meditation and Buddhist psychology and is the founder of and guiding teacher of the One Dharma Sangha, as well as the resident teacher of mindfulness practice at La Casa de Maria in Santa Barbara, California. She mentored in her, was mentored in her teaching by Jack Kornfield, and uh, also Jack Kornfield wrote the foreword to her book that we're going to be talking about today, which is called Heartwork, The Path of Self-Compassion by Shambhala Met Publications. And it's really an honor for me to have Dr. Weininger on our show today. And I really first want to thank you for everything that you offer our community. So not only is um, Dr. Weininger a uh, psychologist and, and Buddhist meditation teacher, she offers so many free programming uh, for a community almost every day of the week. She's offering... Um, compassion practices to our community, sitting meditations, as well as interdisciplinary um, conversations on compassion has really created a lot of sacred spaces for us in Santa Barbara, places where people can come that are peaceful and have a sense of community and belonging. So thank you so much, Dr. Weininger. And today we want to talk a bit about heart work. So maybe we can start with um, your personal story, which you which you share in in the book, heart work, about what led you to Buddhism and, and some of your your history. All right. Um, thank you for asking. Um, I came across a Buddhist practice in 1979, 1980. I was 22, 23 year old then, and I was quite an unhappy young medical student. I had a hard time with myself, my family, studies, just I had a lot of doubts in life, and that culminated when I had two big car accidents and I was for two months in the hospital. And then I ended up taking some time off and going with my boyfriend then to Sri Lanka, which was kind of a haven for German medical students who were a little bit alternative. We studied acupuncture there. But as it happens, I kind of made a beeline for a Buddhist monastery. Not really planned, but it just kind of happened that I did. And so after meeting this really wonderful, uh, mysterious old monk by chance in Colombo, I um, ended up for uh, two months in this, um, in this monastery doing a mindfulness, quite a strict mindfulness practice. And even though I wasn't really um, very knowledgeable about Buddhism, I just had an intuitive, instinctive, a feeling that this would be helping me with my internal pain and my feeling of brokenness and my doubts and my lack of direction. And so um, so I ended up in this uh, monastery, Black Rock Hermitage in Sri Lanka, which really became amazing uh, two months, very hard because sitting 
eight to ten hours a day is really hard. And um, but also I, I found a sense of inner center and and deeper peace, which I didn't know that was there. It was actually quite a surprise to me to find uh, peace at the at the bottom of it all. And uh, then when I went back to Germany, and you know I'm from Germany, and I completed my medical school. Um, I just never let go of this practice. You know, I I always felt quite you know committed to this practice, and for years it became something that helped me. You know, it was something that gave me a sense of inner refuge, inner home. But then I think uh, you, uh, we might talk about that later. It became also part of of my offering to to other people. Mm-hmm. So you went on to become a clinical psychologist and sort of moved out of the medical field and into psychology. And and it really seems that you incorporate these principles and practices and they inform you as a clinical psychologist. And then also in your book that your background in psychology really informs your understanding of, of, of Buddhism and, and the principles as well. Can you talk about that, of how, how each inform each other, how your practice informs your meditation and your meditation informs your practice when working with clients? Well, when I first um, started to study psychology, that which was in the middle 80s in San Francisco, I kind of had this um, idea that those, my spiritual and my psychological practice should be kept separate. Mm -hmm. That's how it was taught then. You know, it's like, uh, to be too spiritual was just, I don't know, had a bit of a flaky name to it. And I wanted to be serious. I wanted to know what the analysts know and the Jungians know and whoever knew. And so uh, for a while, I kept it a little bit artificially separate, even though I felt it was really both were helpful to me. You know, I had my practice and I went to therapy and I got my my PhD in psychology. So it took me a while to bring it together. And at first I was more like what you might call a mindful therapist. Mm. You know, like I used uh, my mindfulness practice to be present, to, be, uh, to raise my awareness, uh, to be more attentive. Um, to be more compassionate in what I was already doing as um, as a psychologist, as a psychotherapist. And I remember then in the early 2000s uh, when Jack Cornfield became my mentor, we had this quite important um, conversation where he asked me, do you meditate with your clients? And I said, oh, no, isn't that bad boundaries? And you should keep this apart and all those kinds of things, which we learned then. And he said, oh, Rodley, get over it. <laughs> and so in a way, we talked about it for a while. And, um, and I realized as long as I'm aware of what I'm doing and as long as I'm doing I don't push on my clients something that they don't want, you know, so I don't meditate with every one of my clients. Just when I really feel it's really helpful, there is an opening, 
there's maybe anxiety or depression and there's an interest. So then, then I might bring meditation in now and then. But um, it, it really helped me to kind of uh, rethink psychotherapy in a little bit. And we can go on more about that later, if you like. The other way around, how psychotherapy is um, useful in spiritual practice, I think it's very useful. In the early 80s, I spent quite a bit of time in uh, a spiritual center in Switzerland. I was part of the staff. Um, I, you know, spent a lot of time in retreat centers, on retreats. And I realized that there were quite a few people who tried to bypass their psychological problems by becoming spiritual. And uh, there is a wonderful article by John Bellwood where he writes about the spiritual bypass, where instead of feeling our pain, actually facing um, the hurt we have experienced in our families, where we try to bypass those uncomfortable maybe messy feelings by um, by meditating or by blissing out or by, you know, just avoiding it. And um, I have seen, you know, especially in spiritual centers that very often can bite us in the heel. And so I guess I hadn't really planned it that way, but I always practiced my meditation and I wasn't, psychotherapy side by side, not knowing really that that's what I would recommend these days, but it worked very well for me. I, I thought it was a good thing. Sometimes I wish that my therapist had understood my spiritual path a little better. I think they kind of accepted it, but they didn't know about it. They were wondering whether this was some kind of oceanic enmeshment or regression or whatever uh, theories were flying around. But I, I think I had some wonderful therapists and I think often they realized, even though they didn't quite understand what I was doing, um, that they saw it was helping me. And um, my spiritual teachers, um, well, I think when I was in Sri Lanka, there wasn't a great psychological understanding, like even self-compassion or compassion wasn't really a word that was used. And was a little bit diehard. And, you know, and I can talk about more about that later because one comes really face to face to one's mind and heart in quite an intense way. And a bit of more psychological understanding might have been helpful, but I survived and I learned a lot and I had to find that out my own way, you know, what helps me and my clients. But then when I met Jack Cornfield in the United States, uh, once I came here in 86, I think I met him for the first time. I, um, he, was, he was also a clinical psychologist and a meditation teacher. And uh, he, he actually felt from the beginning those two belong together. So mm -hmm. is that answering your question? Yes. So 
it it seems that you've come to a place in in your career and your personal life where there's a lot of uh, integrity and alignment between what you're doing in your own personal spiritual practices and also how you're approaching uh, your work with clients. And you you when you read heart work, you really hear that that message of how these practices have transformed you as well as your work with your clients and. Um, a level of integrity there. And I, I guess one question that just came to mind for me is that the concept of mindfulness has gotten so mainstream. Uh, there's mindfulness for lawyers, there's mindfulness for <laughs> plumbers, you know. And a lot of times what, what I'm noticing is that there's, uh, even in the field of, of psychology, there's therapists that are teaching mindfulness, but may not have their own practice or may mm -hmm. not have... Um, the spiritual connection that, that you're talking about. And I, I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Hmm. Interesting. Well, maybe I, I should try to, I guess I'm a little bit agnostic about this. Uh, yes. Maybe my first instinctual feeling is that I think it is, has helped me a lot to have my practice. I actually don't know how I would teach this, without having an authentic practice and going always back to my practice. When I definitely feel I need one to learn retreats every year to just kind of keep myself in a state of um, clarity, maybe uh, balance, um, you know, clean my own side of the street, spiritually and psychologically speaking. And so for my own sense of integrity, that, that is what works. Um, however, when I hear really good things about deep tea and other uh, more uh, briefer methods, and uh, who am I to say that that doesn't help somebody in a treatment center to um, to to have training by somebody who may not have that depth of experience. And actually I had recently an uh, relating um, experience. I was asked from by UCSB to teach a one year facilitator training for lots of their staff members like social workers, nutritionists, drug and alcohol abuse counselors, wellness counselors, well actually through the student wellness center and many of them had oh, almost no experience and at first I was really confronted with this problem you know and maybe also with my own arrogance and so I was wondering will this work and so I, I took this job on I'm still supervising them and we try to have several like three-day retreats. Uh, we um, so we had a year training and several kind of in-depth in trainings, and try to everybody committed to have an ongoing practice. Now everybody downloaded a 10% happier app, and um, I have to say they're doing quite a decent job. Uh, to to teach to um, to the students, mm -hmm. and um, and I think one important thing is they are for other reasons already used to teaching. 
you know, because they're already wellness teachers. So maybe they were able to integrate this knowledge and, and teach it well. And man, this is to very beginning students on campus, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I imagine. So I, I, I actually was surprised how well it worked. Mm -hmm. So maybe, so, yeah, so maybe the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the sense is not certain whether you need to have a meditation practice to teach some of these principles, but certain as to if you do have one, it is most likely to benefit you teaching the principles because you had that inner experience. And well, yeah. I think even those young teachers on campus, they now have a meditation yeah. practice. Yeah. I don't know about somebody not having any meditation practice. I just feel whenever I teach meditation, I come from the from my own experience, you know, I'm not just reading pages, lines right. in a book. So I think maybe I could be a little flexible on how long this practice has been, but it would be good if people practiced a little bit. Yes. Uh, can you speak a bit to uh, the concept of self-compassion? So um, one wing is mindful awareness, and that's gotten very popular in Western psychology. And then a lot of the focus of your book is, is around self-compassion. And in, you talk about um, nine heart work practices that cultivate self-compassion. So can you just start by defining for yourself what is how you define self-compassion? And then we can talk a bit more about some of the practices you teach. Well... Compassion, compatio in Latin, really means suffering with. Suffering with another's uh, suffering or our own suffering. It's, it's about a tenderness of the heart. Um, well, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's also an aspect of compassion, with an, which is an understanding, an understanding of all our interconnectedness. So if we all know we are connected, we are kin, we are relatives, how would we not care? And so I think there's a bit of an understanding aspect to compassion, but mainly it's a feeling aspect. It's, uh, I think, um, Sharon Salzberg said, it's the quivering of the heart in the face of another's pain. And... Um, and so it's a gradual softening of, of our capacity to feel with, to empathize with, to, to be with another, uh, another suffering. And, um, you know, like I think some old wise men said, they are the two wings that allow the bird to fly, wisdom on the one side and compassion on the other side, and we need to develop both to be full human beings. You know, if we are too much on the wisdom side, then we could become detached or a bit cold-hearted or judgmental. And if we are on too much on the compassion side, I read something funny recently, then we are good-hearted fools. I love that, good-hearted fools. But on the other hand, if the world was full of good-hearted fools, maybe that would be okay. But I guess for most of us, it's good to have both wisdom and uh, compassion. 
So it's basically a, a reaching out in a heartfelt I and thou, not um, a horizontal, not a hierarchical uh, reaching out to another one. You know, it doesn't mean we feel better than another person, but we feel with another person. And what does that look like when you're practicing it towards yourself in terms of self-compassion? Right. So, which is often for many of us, especially from, from a Western background, sometimes a difficult step to have this tenderness of the heart towards our own, uh, our own self, our own pain, our human condition, our own um, suffering. Um, our own predicaments, whether they're internal or external or in our relationships or financially or environmentally or whatever it might be. And um, I think self-compassion can be practiced in two different ways, many different ways, but I might just um, uh, point out two major ways. One is, I think, as we practice mindfulness meditation, moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness of whatever comes up in our minds, we see a lot. It's like when you see, you see. You know, we see how angry we are, how frustrated we are. Sometimes we realize how little meaning we have in life. Sometimes we realize how restless we are or how um, envious or ashamed or guilty we feel. And so it's not easy to see all that inside of ourselves. You know, I think that's why we often distract ourselves so immensely because it's just so hard to look inside. So in order to really accurately be with what, what's there inside to see, it's much easier to do that when we have a sense of compassion, a sense of tenderness, a sense of understanding and patience for our human condition. Because to be human means to be fallible. Suffering is part of our human condition. So in that way, I could see self-compassion really important, kind of built into the mindfulness practice. And I think there's one practice, the loving awareness practice, which is in the end of the teaching just straight mindfulness that comes in, where we cultivate a little bit of that, you know, compassion within mindfulness. And then um, there's what is called in Buddhist philosophy, the Brahma Viharas, or in Tibetan philosophy, the four immeasurables. Um, traditionally, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And I think there are a few other ones like forgiveness, uh, gratitude, um, appreciation. You can probably add a few other ones to that two, which are the qualities of the heart. And uh, seeing that there is a value in, um, in cultivating these practices of the heart. And we know now, I think ancient practitioners knew, and we know now in science, we know now through studying neuroplasticity, 
that we cult can cultivate that what we want to see more of. Like the psychologist um, uh, William James said, what we pay attention to becomes reality. And what we pay attention to becomes a new neural pathwork. Uh, so I think uh, cultivating intentionally those qualities of the heart uh, can be really important. It's like learning to drive a car. At first, we really have to see what we are doing. And after a while, it becomes quite um, automatic mm -hmm. or spontaneous. One of the ways that you teach self-compassion and the practices in your book is through uh, using phrases that you speak to yourself. Can you speak to some of the phrases that, that or give examples of some of the phrases that a person would use and, and what that would look like in a meditation practice? Okay, so maybe I'll now speak a little bit towards the second kind of, you know, cultivating uh, compassion for oneself. Um, so the original phrases in meta practice um, were quite wonderful, but a little bit formulaic. And I think they were first, first taught by Sharon Salzberg in the, in the 80s. And we were all quite excited about that. Um, may you be happy. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be free. And uh, what some of us, or maybe many of us, realized, even though we liked those phrases, they were a bit of a, a bit formulaic and a bit generic, and they didn't always quite hit the spot. And so, one thing um, I try to work on uh, by myself and with my editor is how to make these phrases more relevant and accessible. And I realized when I always try things out on myself. So on these long retreats, I, I work these phrases for myself, for my own suffering. And I just realized when they were more accessible and relevant to my particular uh, challenge, they would be more useful and they would calm me down more and they would give me more of a sense of, nurturing and um, and coming to a sense of peace. So, for example, I would start with, may I be safe from inner and outer dangers? May um, I live my life with ease? Um, may I be compassionate with myself when I feel vulnerable and afraid? Mm -hmm. Um, for example, you know, or may I uh, extend tenderness towards myself as I'm going through this very hard time in my life. Mm -hmm. So, um, or um, may I be patient and gentle with myself as I experience this bout of shame, you know, something like that. And, you, and would you work with a client to help personalize those statements for them as well? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we kind of work on them to, together. Mm -hmm. And we I sent my client uh, home with, with some of those uh, phrases we came up with. Mm -hmm. Which is very different from probably how our mind usually works when we're facing 
difficulty or shame and usually the the languaging that maybe have programming programmed from a long time ago that we tend to go to that's more automatic and self-critical or harsh so it's it is a reprogramming of, wow. of how you relate to yourself when you're experiencing difficulty one of the the things that I um, that you alluded to is that in psychotherapy practice part of the work is being able to go into and feel what mm -hmm. you don't want to feel wow. and and then and so you're holding that while you're bringing compassion to it and I, I wonder sometimes when I work with clients I, I will get the statement from them that it's just too intense to go there Mm -hmm. and I'm too afraid to go there or I just can't feel this. Mm -hmm. What is your response to that? How do you approach that? Well, I think uh, whether it's psychotherapy or meditation, um, you know, we humans have a little bit of an avoidance to go into pain. And... Uh, and so often we have to come to a point where where we are willing to to be with some of that pain. And uh, I, I was just reminded of um, the prophet by Khalil Gibran, where he says, um, "It's the pain. Um, it's the pain that makes the crack." That uh, or no, it's the pain that uh, cracks the shell that encloses our understanding. Mm. So it's the pain that cracks the shell that encloses our ego or our understanding. And I think Leonard Cohen said it in a more contemporary version: "It's the crack. It's the crack where the light comes in." So yes, that is right, and hopefully we have uh, a good enough therapeutic relationship that allows people to to kind of go a little bit to put their toe into the water and um, my, most of the time people come to us who are already a little bit in pain you know it's not usually somebody who comes in not in pain saying well should I <laughs> it's usually we are, there's already a little bit of a crack when people come and I see that also in uh, in meditation groups you know we westerners come usually to meditation groups we have a little bit of pain but then maybe what I would say to a client or a student is uh, to say yeah you know I really understand that reluctance it really feels counterintuitive and uh, that I myself on my path have, have felt similarly, you know, that why would I want to look at something that is painful? But, you know, sometimes we have to um, look at something to come out the other side. It's like the, the mythical journey into the underworld you know, to come out in the other side of awareness, greater awareness and greater well-being and greater health, we, we sometimes have to go through um, the forest. And maybe I also would a little bit, I would quote, um, do you know the psychologist Eugene uh, Gentling? Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about the felt sense mm -hmm. because we really have to come to the felt sense of, of our suffering 
you know, it's not just about the idea of it. We have to come to the felt sense of it. And here's a tiny little quote. Psychologist Eugene Gentling called the felt sense a special kind of internal bodily awareness, a body sense of meaning, which the conscious mind is initially unable to articulate. The felt sense not in only brings you into the present moment, but it increases relaxed alertness. The moment you experience the felt sense of painful feelings is exactly when change can happen. The felt sense helps you recognize when you're afraid, hurt, angry, or ashamed, and to gain insight into the meaning of that experience for you. The depth of this understanding allows you to access the ability to extend compassion to yourself and to others. Then something in your way of being starts to reconfigure and you gain a healthier understanding of yourself and you can become increasingly free. Does that make sense? Yes. I think Gentling really here explained to us why it is important to come to a felt sense of this, of our suffering, because it is the present moment exactly where change can happen. Mm-hmm. Or I might uh, quote Carl Rogers, who says, change comes about when we truly are what we are and not when we are trying to be what we are not. So when we are trying to look all wonderful and upbeat, but we are really sad, then change cannot happen. And we are kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's also a little bit about a certain kind of faith or trust, which one learns as one works and practices and does psychotherapy. The trust, when we put one step in front of the next, that doors will open. Mm-hmm. So in heart work, you start with uh, developing a mindful awareness practice, which is sort of the entryway to that felt sense. And then you move into some practices for compassion for self and compassion for other. And then you also developed a practice for how to respond to our emotional reactions when they arise. And you call it the compassionate choice practice Mm -hmm. and it really feels like that that is um the beautiful marriage of psychology and your buddhist background in in um the worksheets that you created can you speak to the compassionate choice practice and what it what it offers i came to the compassionate choice practice really um how is that about eight years ago um and what happened is I always felt there was this gap between my psychotherapy practice and my spiritual practice. And also I felt that my diligent morning, every morning meditation sometimes wouldn't help me when I was upset during the day. And the same with my clients. And so then I was invited to a training with um famous researcher on emotions, Paul Ekman and Alan Wallace. They gave this six-week training in, in Thailand. 
And so where we learned all about triggers and how our emotions work and how uh, triggers were leading to body feelings, to emotions, to um, acting out and uh, how difficult it is to breathe a little bit of awareness or oxygen into this process. And while I was at this training for six weeks, which, which was useful, uh, but some of it was quite researchy. So me being the clinician, I immediately in my mind started to transpose what I learned into how can I make this practical for myself and my clients. And so while I was having this precious time there for six weeks, I came up with the compassionate choice practice, which looks at times when we have been triggered and which means something sparks an immediate uncomfortable feeling. This trigger can be set by internal thoughts. Sometimes we just trigger ourselves with a memory or by external events. And so what can we do when that happens? You know, how can we not just be totally at the mercy, sitting ducks to those events? And so I started to write down every time I got triggered, let's say during this six-week training, um, I would start to keep note what actually was happening and how would that coincide what Paul Ackman was teaching. So I realized right after the trigger would come the sensation, a body feeling, for example, a tightening in the belly, a constriction near the heart, a flushed face, whatever it might be. And then I noticed that right after that, or in close vicinity, was an emotion. And sometimes one was first and sometimes the other, you know, so, but they were in close vicinity that feelings would come up like anger, fear, embarrassment, indignation, or some other unpleasant pleasant emotion. And then I realized, and maybe that comes from my psychodynamic training, that often these triggers unearth something from the past. Like one day in this training, this woman sat in my chair. After two weeks, this had been my chair. And I was just very upset. She just had moved my stuff. You know, I don't know if she knew or not. Doesn't matter. There I was without my chair. And I realized that brought up feelings for me from when I was very little. And I felt really uh, kind of not seen and... Um, not respected by my family and my cousins. And so that's why I put in this phrase automatic association. What comes up? And it's not about analyzing it, more about tagging it. My boss reminds me of my father. Okay, you know, so just noticing. And I realized noticing where it was coming from without really going into it in depth. Just ah, it's Uncle Peter, or it's whatever, being three years old, kind of gave me a sense of feeling understood. You know, a sense of my, my heart would calm down. Ah, that's what it is. 
And then I realized sometimes we make very quick emotional conclusion that follow that, like, oh, I'm not worthy or um, life uh, never goes well for me or uh, people don't like me or whatever it might be. Um, I think maybe that's uh, what, what I felt, you know, with this woman with a chair said, oh, women just don't like me something like that and then an urge to act either externally i want to go and yell at her i want to tell the organizers or maybe just internally ruminating why is this happening to me why da 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 and then i realized and i learned that from paul ackman it's important to interrupt that process and take a little time out maybe i might call it here a mindful time out where I sit for a moment, I would walk around a big field and breathe. I would meditate. Um, I would, I don't know, hug a tree, whatever uh, helps you to to feel again a little bit in balance. Or maybe um, you just go to the bathroom and, and take 10 breaths and watch your exhale. And then I would come to the second half of this process and I would say actually what helps me to watch myself in this process with compassionate awareness like no wonder this um, triggers me because I was treated like this as a kid so when this woman sat in my chair which is not a big deal really no wonder that really throws me so out of balance and then I would already feel calmer and, and more kind of less excited. And um, then I would be able to look a little bit with a bigger perspective, which I call a compassionate evaluation. Like, okay, maybe a chair is just a chair, or uh, maybe we can find different solutions, or, you know, maybe I should just wait a day or whatever it might be. And then that would come to the compassionate choice where we respond with more awareness, skill, and care. And I think for me here, actually, the compassionate choice was to to wait a day. <laughs> and then eventually I would write her a little note and I said, I was just wondering if you were aware, <laughs> but it's okay. And I think what we did in the end, we just uh, put another chair there. So everybody was able to sit there and it was all okay. And it, it actually, and it actually was a really good learning experience for me. So um, I was very grateful to the chair episode. Yes. Uh, it helped me. And in your, in your book, Heart Work, you have, the uh, layout of the questions to step step you through each of those and some worksheets that people can work through if they want to practice this for themselves and I really like the structure because you know me in structure <laughs> I like the structure of it but also the uh, just the real sort of integration of uh, Western understanding of emotion you know how emotions develop and the course of emotions but then also the wisdom and experience for, that you worked through uh, in terms of how to develop more compassion for self um, in the process. So thank you. And one of the things that I asked Rodley for uh, when we when we first started is. 
for her to share a meditation with us. And it's a real gift. Um, she offers beautiful uh, meditations. And I was thinking that we could close today with a meditation from Radhali, a loving kindness, uh, compassionate meditation, about five minutes long. So if you are listening and maybe you could either pause this if you're driving and save it for when you get home or you're walking, save it for a time that you can carve out for yourself to give yourself this gift. Uh, Radhali will lead us in a meditation as we close. Would you like a, a self-compassion meditation? Yeah. So what kind of meditation? I think a self-compassion meditation I think would be very okay. nice. Yeah. That'd be good. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it was really lovely to talk to you. Could have talked another hour with you. Thank it you. It was really uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. The loving kindness practice. Allow yourself to settle into the sensations in your body. Notice the touch between your body the chair, the cushion, the ground. And allow your whole body to be filled with presence. Notice what is going on in your body, heart and mind. What is comfortable and what is uncomfortable. What is easy and what is challenging. Just be aware of it. And while holding yourself with loving awareness, you may say the following words with kindness to yourself. May my heart be full of love and kindness. May I live my life with ease.
May I be free from inner and outer danger to my body, heart and mind. May my mind and heart be free from painful thoughts and feelings. May I accept my life with all its challenges and opportunities. May my mind and heart be open like the sky to all that flowers through. May my mind and heart be open like the sky to all that flows through. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May I find the support I need. May life rise up to meet me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.